turn in your Bibles to, please turn your Bibles to Romans 2. Romans 2, and then also, if you don't have uh, your hymnal, I'm sorry, if you don't have uh, that, the notes page, or the outline for tonight, you could look at page 939 in the back of your hymnals for the Westminster Confession, but it is printed there for you to read. Let's look at Romans 2, starting at verse 1. Romans 2, starting at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And then we look at Section 2 of chapter 33 says there that the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing, which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who know not God, and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments, and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that as your word is preached, that you would help us to receive it, to receive your holy scriptures, not as the words of men, but what it truly is, your holy word that comes from you, the very word of God. Help us to love your word, to receive your word, and we pray that you would bless uh, my exposition, that it would be in in accordance uh, with the remainder of your holy word and that it would be pleasing in your sight. But open our ears to hear 
and our eyes to see and our hearts to receive this, your holy word, for we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Maybe you're not the kind of person who asks this question, well, why the judgment? Why does God even have to have a judgment? Um, we'll get to this in a little bit later, but not right away, but it's kind of similar to the same question of why the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did there have to be a cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Section 2 begins, and I'm adding words in here according to your outline. Section 2 here begins saying that the end, or you could say that's the purpose, the purpose of God's appointing this day, which day? The day of judgment, is for the manifestation or the demonstration of two very important attributes of God. And we have them listed there. The first is the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. And secondly, his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So again, we have two attributes, God's mercy and God's justice. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his mercy. He's infinite and unchangeable in his justice. God cannot but help to uphold these two attributes. He can't lay aside either of these two attributes because he is the perfect holy God. He's infinitely holy and perfect in his being. But because he is just and holy, sin must be punished. God revealed to Moses his character. This was in Exodus 34. He said, God revealed to Moses this. He says, the Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this community, a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people throughout the world, who look at God not according to what Scripture says, but they look at God knowing that God is merciful, and they look at him as some sort of exalted Santa Claus. What do I mean by that? He's a cosmic Santa Claus, and yes, even though you're a bit naughty, you still get your gifts on Christmas under the tree. Well, you can be naughty in this life, and God's still going to have mercy on you. And he's going to still allow you into heaven because that's what God is like because that's what you learned from Santa Claus. Um, In a similar fashion, some of these people, they're unrepentant over sin. They continue to be unrepentant in their sin against God, their family, their friends, the people in the culture. They're unrepentant even regarding the sins against the church. They don't care to ever worship the Lord, and they, or they're disobedient in seeking Him. And they still think, well, God is merciful. He's just going to allow me in heaven because He's this great cosmic Santa Claus. Now, sometimes they have a profession of faith, or they have no profession of faith. But there's one thing, there's two words here in this section that describe them. Wickedness and disobedience. So yes, they might have a profession, but their, their life is characterized by wickedness and disobedience. And they might cling to an idol of some sort, 
but they say, well, God is merciful after all, isn't he? Now, this God that they think of as the cosmic Santa Claus is not the God of the Bible. He's, the God, he's a God with a little g, because he's a God of their imagination. And they have, just, they have originated a notion of who God is. Um, and you hear people say something like this, well, the God that I worship is not like that. You, you might show them scripture. You might, re- you might show them something in the New Testament. And they might say, the God who I worship is not like that because the God they worship is not the God of the Bible, uh, but is a God of their own imagination. He's not, that God is not the holy, infinitely powerful, almighty, just God of the Bible. Now, the purpose, the purpose of God's judgment, according to this section here, is to demonstrate, to show the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. And we saw some of this language here in Romans. Uh, We saw uh, some of the things that was uh, mentioned here. Let's look back, Romans. It says, verse 6, chapter 2, speaking of God, he says, Of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now, the Father's purpose, again, the Father's purpose in exercising His judgment on that great day of judgment is to show forth um, the glory of His mercy and His justice. But in a similar fashion, the Father's purpose in giving us the cross of Jesus. Think about this. The cross of Jesus is given to show us the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, but his cross is also to show his justice, his holiness, in causing the curse due for wicked sinners such as us to fall upon his only begotten son. His undefiled, sinless son becomes the substitute, and he becomes the one who receives the punishment and the wrath due for sinners. Because he's a holy God, sin must be punished. And if you have faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ, that wrath that was due for you has been inflicted already upon Jesus Christ. Um, I want us to look at a a very important passage. We'll look at Romans 3, 21 and following. It speaks about why the cross was necessary and also the demonstration of of God's justice and his holiness, but remaining just in this. Um, This is Romans 3, 21 and following. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been demonstrated, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That means a, the one who takes or a turning away of wrath, one who receives wrath. He's received God's wrath in our stead. So he's a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God remains both just and merciful. He's both loving and merciful. And that mercy is demonstrated. And those two things kiss at the cross, just as we see those two things interacting in, the, in that great day of judgment. Section 2 goes on to tell uh, what God will grant to those who have a lively saving faith that is working through love. Such elect, elect righteous persons who obey the gospel of Christ, it says here, they will go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing. Now let's think a little bit more of this notion of the fullness of joy and refreshing. I would say the most joyous Christian that has ever stepped foot on this earth has never had what we would describe here as the, joy, the fullness of joy and refreshing. Um, let's say there's a person who's... I can't, I can't think of any particular individual, but let's, let's say even the Apostle Paul. Or let's say, yeah, let's say the Apostle Paul. Um, they're full and rich in the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. Do you think Paul had joy from the minute he woke up out of, and got out of bed to the very minute he laid his head back down to sleep at night? No, and Paul even said, wretched man that I am, in Romans 7, he, he basically grieves over his particular sin. Um, sometimes he was coveting. One of the things that Paul struggled with, according to Romans 7, was covetousness. So he probably wasn't joyful because he was wanting something that wasn't his. In other words, you, if you're joyful, you're content. But if you're coveting, you're not content. You're not as joyful as you could because you really want something else. But Paul struggled with that. However, when the saints go to the glories of heaven and then go to the new heavens and the new earth, they will have what we would call the fullness of joy and refreshing. Forever joyful. Never having sadness, never having gloom, depression, unrighteous anger, covetousness, or anxiety, or any of those emotions or problems or sins, but being totally, fully, and completely joyous every moment. 
Can you imagine being joy? I mean, we, we have intermittent joy. We might be joyous for a time, and then after a while, you know, then you're angry again or upset or again or discontent again. It's, it comes and goes, doesn't it? Um, the Christian life, you can characterize it as having those mountaintop experiences. Sometimes it's more like little low hills, and other times it's valleys. And in, in Louisiana, we got the low swamplands too. Uh, so it's, you're not just in a valley, you're in a swamp, you know. Um, and that's, that's even for Christians in this life. But you could say at, at the same time, even though you have those times, Christians could be characterized as being a joyful person for the most part. However, in heaven and glory, we will have the fullness, completeness of joy and refreshing And yes, we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We go through those hard times in this life, but in the life to come, there will be the fullness of joy forever and ever in the presence. And it mentions here in in this section that refreshing joy and uh, refreshing, uh, wonderful blessing comes from the presence of the Lord. Section 2 closes by contrasting what the righteous receive. Section 2 closes by telling what those uh, who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ will receive. It says, The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So this section here describes in great detail uh, what's in store for the reprobate. And uh, we want to look at a couple passages. One is listed here uh, in, your, in your outline. It describes uh, the condemnation and the gruesome language for those who do not know God and who disobey the gospel. It says, They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is from Revelation 14.10 and following. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Now, some people ask, well, is hell a place where someone is separated, utterly separated from the presence of God? In other words, God's presence is absolutely not there, they, would, they might say. But if you look at this passage carefully, Revelation 14.10, the punishment, the inflicted punishment that's there is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell is not being separated from from God. Hell is being separated from any notion of God's love, mercy, or compassion. But the only thing there in hell is complete, utter wrath. And that's, that's the only thing they'll get from God in that place. In the presence... They'll have the presence of the Lamb, but it'll be the presence of the Lamb only in His wrath. 
There will no longer be any opportunity for mercy, only wrath. They will cry out in grief, regret, and shame. They might even, like uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they might cry out regretting the sin that they committed. They might cry out and say, Lord, just have mercy on me. And, or maybe they might even cry out with regret, wishing that their, their loved ones still on earth would be spared of that wrath to come. But it will be unrelenting, and there will only, only be unrelenting holy wrath. Now, for those who ride the fence, and they got one foot in the church and one foot in the world, I would hope the threat of such passages of Scripture, such as Romans, um, such as Revelation 14, I hope that such passages threaten you to the point where it want to scare um, the wickedness and sin out of you. You know? Uh, there are some things in life that are so scary that they should scare you out of your wickedness and sin. And the threats are real. Now, this is a little prelude into, the ne- into next week and our final lesson. One of the reasons why we don't know when Christ comes back is because God doesn't want us to know for a very particular reason. Because if we knew when Jesus was coming back, oh, well, it's going to be at the end of 2023. Well, I can live in some sin from now until November. And when November rolls around, I'm going to get my life straight again because I know he's coming back at the end of 2023. But no, because you don't know when he's going to return, you can't live any way that you want or you shouldn't want to live any way you want because God has a reason why he's not told us the day and the hour. I... I think it's very interesting that it's both in the language of Romans 2. It talks about um, who do those... Look back at Romans 2, verse 8. It mentions those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath. To them will come wrath and indignation. Think about that. Those who do not obey the truth. Now you might say to yourself, well, we have to obey the law of God, right? We obey the law of God. So how, how is it that you obey truth or not obey truth? Well, and I've been thinking about this a lot. The first greatest commandment, according to Deuteronomy 6, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You could say that summarizes... The first, second, third, and fourth commandments, right? If you summarize that, you could find that if, you, if, you're, if you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and your lips, you're, you're obeying those first four commandments. But then God tells you, I've given my son as a holy sacrifice for your sin. And you decide, well, I don't think I need that. I'm just going to try to keep the law instead of embracing your son, Jesus Christ. Or I'm going to try to be a good person, but I don't think I need that, Lord Jesus. You're breaking God's holy commandments because God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And you reject him? That's disobedience. And as Hebrews talks about it, it's a 
It's a wicked heart of unbelief. A wicked heart. It's not just, oh, the per- that person's not wise. It's a wicked heart of unbelief to reject the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sin. To reject this offer is to obey not the gospel, to disobey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate sin that will send you to hell, to disobey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by not embracing by faith this holy gospel, by faith and practice. Let's pray together. We ask our beloved Lord that you would help us to be not those who reject your holy gospel. We pray that you would help us to receive and believe in this this truth that in, in Jesus Christ alone that we have hope of eternal life, that we would receive through Jesus Christ the demonstration of your both your righteousness um, and your mercy in giving your only begotten Son. And help us, we pray, to remember that you are the one who has demonstrated yourself both as just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus We pray that by your Holy Spirit and through your word that you would give each one of us this steadfast faith and that we would live uh, according not to our desires, but that we would live our lives as holy sacrifices before you. Build us up in this holy faith, we ask, for we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, we'll turn in our older red uh, Trinity hymnals and we'll sing together 71. Stand up, O God, be present now. Let's stand and sing 71.